Morning, church. If you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 3. Exodus, chapter 3, this morning, specifically verses 1 through 6 this morning. Exodus 3, 1 through 6. I ask you the question, who is God? Who, who is God? I ask you that question realizing that, that the way you answer that question has far-reaching implications for every aspect of your life. That how you answer that question, it has foundational implications for your life as a student, your life as a son or a daughter, a father, a wife. It has far-reaching implications for you in your workplace. It has far-reaching implications for just who you are and how you understand who you are. Who is God? A.W. Tozier, a pastor from decades ago, a popular writer, would write these words. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. We tend by secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Which is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christian that composes the church. Always. The most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Who is God? How do you answer that question? Who is God? J.B. Phillips, a writer and pastor, again from decades ago, had a book called Your God is Too Small. And he said that oftentimes when we answer that question, who is God, we, we have two extremes in which we view our answer. One, one is God as the moral police officer who is right around the corner looking for you to break a commandment, to catch you when you least expect it. God is the moral police officer. Now, on the other end, uh, J.B. Phillips said that oftentimes we think of God as the doting grandparent. A doting grandparent who can see no wrong in her or his grandchildren. So in one conception, we can do no right. In the other conception, we can do no wrong. Who is God? Thankfully, we have a God who is not silent. That the most important way for us to answer that question is not by looking inside ourselves and coming up with this sort of philosophical answer to this question, but rather the most important way for us to answer who is God is to listen to the way Scripture reveals God to us. Our God is not silent. He has spoken to us and He has revealed to us in and through His Word who he is. And we come now to one of these Mount Everest passages. We come now to one of these high places in scripture that has at its focal point, the revelation of God to us, his creation. Who is God? Well, listen to the text as Moses encounters this God in what we know to be the burning bush. Exodus chapter three, verses one through six. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he 
led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Oreb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, that is Moses, he looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Who is God? These six verses, I want us to think about how God meets us in our wilderness, and I want us to think about how God is self-sufficient in himself. When we answer the question, who is God, it is important for us to answer it through Scripture, understanding that God meets us in our desperation. Coming back to this passage here, it's important for you to know a little bit of the history of where Moses is in his life. According to Acts chapter 7 and Stephen's sermon, you know how old is, how old Moses is when he comes to this burning bush? It is Moses at 80 years old. So that means that Moses has been attending to the flock of his father-in-law for 40 years, four decades Four decades to sort of get the the taste of the palace out of Moses' mouth. Uh, Forty years to to kind of lose sight of his Hebrew roots. Forty years to sort of think to himself, you know, I'm just going to retire here far away from the people that knew me and the royalty that I existed in. So for 40 years, Moses has been in the wilderness. On a parallel track, we discover in this passage that the Israelites are, are still back in Egypt. Now, now Moses, he's married, he's got kids, he's tending the flock, he's going to retire sort of casually here, but not so much for the Israelites. Sort of back on the ranch, in Exodus chapter 2, we read, during those many days the king of Egypt died. So the Pharaoh that has the edict to to kill the firstborn, he died. Another Pharaoh emerges. We oftentimes think of one Pharaoh through the book of Exodus because they're interchangeable. They both oppose the things of God. There's not one who is repentant and one who is obedient. They they both stand sort of as the arch nemesis to, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob here. And so one Pharaoh died, another one emerges, and the people of Israel, they groan because of their slavery. And they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, verse 25, and God, verse 24, God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And then notice verse 25, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Moses is in the wilderness 40 years. The Israelites are in the wilderness of their captivity under Egyptian oppression for over 400 years. So we got 400 years of the wilderness of captivity for the Israelites, 40 years in the wilderness for Moses. And notice what verse 25 tells us, that God saw the people of Israel and God knew. That word knew is an important word. 
I mean, it seems to be a, a lazy word in English. It seems to be a word that just means mental apprehension, mental comprehension. You know someone's name. You know something about someone. No, 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 no. Not in the Hebrew language. You go back to Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Adam knew Eve, and Eve gave birth to a son named Cain. So to know in Scripture, to know in the, in the Hebrew language, is, is more than just intellectual. You know something about something. It is intimacy. It is, it is a depth of relationship. It is personal. What, what the passage is telling us is that the Israelites, they cry out for 400 years, Have you forgotten us, God? And God not only sees, but he deeply cares. He deeply knows. He deeply feels. There's intimacy here. Moses, he's hanging out in the wilderness for 40 years thinking, God's forgotten about me here. But it's there. Not when Moses goes looking for God. Not when Moses has this long journey trying to find God. No, God meets Moses in the wilderness. And God meets the Israelites in their captivity. God in his sovereignty comes to them in their greatest need. And I think it's important for us to know that God still meets us when we might be tempted to think he has forgotten about us. Oh, it's not 400 years. It might not be 40 years. But there's some of you that are wondering, over the last months, where has God been in the midst of my cries, my groanings? Maybe the past years there's been difficulty that, that has intersected your life and you're tempted to say, God, why have you forgotten me? God, why have you, have you left me in, in the wilderness here? Where are you in the midst? And what we need to be reminded is, is that God meets us even in the captivity of our depression. And God not only sees, but God knows. Maybe it's not the captivity of depression, but maybe it's the captivity of a, of a health crisis. And God not only sees, but God knows. Maybe it's the wilderness of a family struggle. And God not only sees, but he knows. Maybe it's the captivity of uncertainty. And you're, you're tempted to say, God, where are you in the midst of my difficulty? Where are you in the midst of, of question marks without sure answers? And God not only sees, but God knows. Over these past months here in Birmingham, at least, there's been a little bit of chatter about two Amazon distribution centers, one going in at the old Century Plaza Mall, one going in out at Bessemer. Hundreds of people have applied, maybe thousands of people have applied for some of these jobs. Hundreds of people will work there. And, and I'm 100% sure this is going to happen here, is that somebody's going to go in and they're going to be uh, going into to that workplace, the Amazon distribution center, and there's going to be a health crisis with one of their kids and the kid can't go to school and they can't find a babysitter to be able to keep the kids. So, so the, the person that is working there has got to pick up the phone and has got to call somebody. And I know, and you know, we know that the person who works at that Amazon distribution center is not going to call Jeff Bezos. the CEO and founder of Amazon. I mean, like, we know this. It makes perfect sense to us. A person who, who oversees the, the founding CEO of a company that employs 1.2 million people cannot get in the muck and the mire of his employees. Not at that level. 
Not at the granular level. Uh, yeah, there are going to be health crises in the midst of those people. There's going to be difficulty in the midst of those people here. But the CEO has got to remain above that. Can't know all the details of 1.2 million people. But what Scripture tells us is, is that there is a God who sees and knows the details of 7.8 billion people that live here on this earth. And any and every one of them that cries out to him, God, where are you in the midst? And you fill in the blank. He knows and he sees you in the midst of grief, in the midst of uncertainty. He has not forgotten you. And this is good news, that we serve a God who is intimately involved even when you feel that he has forgotten you. He meets Moses in the wilderness. He meets the Israelites in their captivity. Notice also that the God who meets them in the wilderness is the God who is self-sufficient in himself. It's easy for us to pass over the details of this burning bush encounter, especially for those of you that have grown up in the church and maybe you have sat through a Sunday school lesson or 10 or 20 of them. Or maybe you've been through uh, uh, kindergarten, through uh, you know, elementary school, a vacation Bible school, and, and you've heard this story, and it's easy for us to miss some of the details of this story. Notice that what draws Moses' attention is the fact, not that the bush was burning, but the bush was not being consumed. A, a lightning strike could have hit that bush, and the bush could have been engulfed. I mean, there, there, there are physical ways to explain this, but what Moses sees has no natural answer to it. Now, notice what Scripture tells us in verse 2, that the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire. And all throughout the rest of this encounter, we see the Lord speaking to Moses, God speaking to Moses. There's a question of, is there an angel in this bush, or is it the Lord or God in this bush? Now notice that 67 times in the Old Testament, we have this phrase, the angel of the Lord, that, that represents, it represents God incarnate. It represents an appearance of God to his people. It is a precursor to the ultimate appearance of God to his people that we know to be the, the second person of the Trinity, God, who Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. So the angel of the Lord is the representation of God to Moses, speaking to Moses as God. This is God speaking to him, but it is God who is holding back. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, if you go to Exodus chapter 33, Moses says to God, hey, I want to see all of you. Like appear to you, I want to, I want to see you face to face. And what does God say? Hey, look, if, if I come to you and, and I have my whole radiance upon you, you will be consumed because of the holiness of my perfection, the radiance of who I am, and you are a sinner. So I am, if you remember in Exodus 33, we'll get there like, down the road. And, and what does God say? He's like, I'm going I'm to pass by you. You see my backside. And there's a sense where we discover here that, that God cannot just come before Moses, nor can he come before us because he's perfectly holy and we are, well, we're, perfect, we're perfectly sinful. So we need, we need a representation. We need an intercessor. We need one who is perfectly God and perfectly man to take and bridge that gap between the holiness of God the Father and the sinfulness of us and praise God. 
But the testimony of that is the Son, Jesus Christ. And so even as we read here in verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame, we hear God accommodating himself to Moses through the form of fire. Now again, it's important for us to pause here. Because all throughout Scripture, we're going to hear God referred to as fire. In Deuteronomy 4, verse 24, in Deuteronomy 9, verse 23, even when you go to Hebrews chapter 12, God is a consuming fire. Do you remember uh, when we fast forward this story, the Israelites, they're wandering in the wilderness, and God appears to them and leads them how? By a fire, by night. Hey, look, you don't have to be an Eagle Scout to know this about fire. You, you have to fuel a fire. To, to have fire, you, you have to consume the wood. So you have to put wood, and you have to, you have, to have something that's going to ignite that wood, and ultimately going to set a flame, and the wood, it gets consumed because it fuels the fire. You've got to put kindling in a fire. You've got to roll up some newspaper, and you've got to fuel that flame. But here we discover a flame that needs no fuel. Here we discover God in the fiery bush here, but the bush is not being consumed. And it's easy for us to miss this detail here, but I want you to see that God is a self-sustaining fire. And this is glorious news to all of us that are here. Like the burning bush, God never runs out of fuel. His glory never dims. His light never fades. He always keeps burning bright. This is what we want to relish and we want to pause and we want to walk around in the details of this story because it tells us of a God who is wholly self-sufficient, who is wholly independent. He's eternally secure in himself. I'm going to say it just even more directly here because we, we can miss this. God in no way is dependent upon us. God is in no way dependent upon this earth. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. And this goes counter to sort of our eye-focused society. We, we might not say it directly, but it is hard for us to think that God doesn't need us, need our gifts, need our personality. There's a part of us that thinks that God needs a little bit of help, and that's why he created us, because there's an insufficiency. No, our greatest need is a God who doesn't need us. His holy self-sufficiency gives us comfort. His holy independence, it grounds us in the glory of who God is. When you go to a radiologist, and they're consulting you in regard to the scans that you just took, what isn't comforting to you in that moment is for the radiologist to look at the scans and then look at you, look at the scans and look at you, and say to you, I just can't quite figure out what's going on here. You got any thoughts? Mm -mm. We need a radiologist who doesn't need our thoughts. We need a radiologist who doesn't need our opinion.
We need a radiologist who, independent of what we think about what the diagnosis is, it can, can look that she or he can look and say, this is what's going on here. And I, as the expert, am able to look at this and I'm able to tell you that what you think about this doesn't really matter. This is what this is. Or flip side of this, think about another example. We need teachers. Oh, of course, teachers. I mean, they're, they're engaging their classroom. They're, they're engaging their students with questions. But I tell you what's uncertain for students and what is wholly uh, insecure for them is when, when, the, when the teacher is teaching something that says, hey, in 1862, this happened, and it's in that moment that they have no idea what happened. And they say, hey, can somebody Google what happened there? Can you all help me out here? No, no, we need a teacher who's the expert in the classroom, who isn't dependent upon the students to provide the answer, but knows the answer, engages the students with that authority. Now we come back to the text here and we realize that God is wholly self-sufficient. God is wholly independent. God is not dependent upon you. He's not dependent upon me. Acts chapter 17 reads, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he, hey, can you read that on the screen? As though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Everything that we are, everything that we aspire to be, everything that we need in this world is wholly dependent upon a God who is wholly independent. There's a word for this in the attributes of God that we need to dust off and recover. We, we talk about God, and maybe you're familiar, as God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. God is omniscient. That means he's all-knowing. God is omnipresent. That means he's everywhere. And a word that, that we don't hear, but it's a word that's been passed down the church, is, is the aseity of God. A-S-E-I-T-Y. The aseity of God. The independence of God. The self-sufficiency of God. This is what we're relishing this morning. Only a God who doesn't need us is worthy of our worship. Only a God who is wholly self-dependent, uh, independent of us, is worthy of our worship. Now, this is what's so amazing about this. The wholly self-sufficient God has chosen to save us and to love us and to bring about a rescue mission uh, on our behalf through his son, Jesus, not because he has to or he needs to, but just out of the overflow of his security. There's no neediness in God. There's no clingliness in God. There's no codependency in God where he finds his identity in you or in me. No, it's, it's rather the response of Moses where he says, Moses, Moses, calls him twice there, this, this sign of calling to him. And the first thing that he says isn't this, hey, Moses, I, hey, it's my lucky day. You, you would never know how hard it is to track you down. You would never know how, how big this wilderness is. I've been looking for you for 40 years here, and finally I've called up. Everybody's talking about you. Everybody's saying how you're such a great leader. Everybody's talking about how you're so wise and how you're so courageous. I really need your help to come back to Egypt and help me get these people out of this bond. No, that's not what he says to Moses. 
You know what he says to Moses? Hey, you're on holy ground. Take your shoes off. Your response, worship. Your response, know the holiness of this moment here. And what does Moses do? He hides his face because he recognizes his finitude to the infinity of God. He recognizes his imperfection to the holiness of God. And this is a great truth here that Moses is going to have to learn. God is not calling Moses to do something, wondering, can I do this through Moses? No, only because God doesn't need us are we free to trust him. Only because God doesn't need Moses to do this is Moses free to trust him as he does what God calls him to do. This is a hard thing for us to learn. We're almost having to relearn this every day. God doesn't, he's not dependent upon us. And that's a glorious truth because it frees us to trust his plans, to trust his priorities. Because his plans and his priorities, they don't rest on the shoulders of you and me. Yes, he calls us. Yes, there's a response that we have. But know that the holy, self-sufficient God doesn't have the fate of human history riding on your shoulders or my shoulders. And that's good news. Because our shoulders are weak. We can be fickle and we can be, we, we can be impatient. And, and, and we're imperfect humans here, but he is perfectly faithful. He is totally consistent and he doesn't need us, but oh, how we need him every hour. We need him. And the story of Moses is learning to trust in a God who is wholly sufficient. Boy, it's easy for us to miss this. It's easy for us to pass over this. We often live as if tomorrow depends upon our every move today. We so often feel as if the weight of the world is on your shoulders and on my shoulders. But can I I tell you some good news this morning? You don't have to have the weight of the world on your shoulders when you know that God has the whole world in his hands. He is not asking you to be a stand-in God for him. He is not asking you for, to hold everything up around us. He is saying, trust me because I hold it all up. Trust me because I am self-sufficient. Trust me because I am independent. I have a plan for this world. I have a plan for you. And you can trust me because of who I am. Yesterday, I was driving down Broadway. Broadway is a street just right outside of the church here that runs through a major part of Homewood here. And I I was just driving, and as often happens on on that street, you have people outside, and they're doing things with their family. And I noticed as I drove past what seemed to be a dad with his young daughter, and he, he was just doing this out in the road. He was just taking his daughter and just throwing her up. Her arms are flailing about, her legs are flailing about, and, and he would catch her, and he would do it again. And he would do it again. 
I've got a 15-year-old, a 13-year-old, and a, and a nine-year-old, and, and, and it felt like just the other day that I was doing that with my own boys, and I remember so vividly, I would throw them up, and, and they would go up as high as I could get them, and then I would catch them, and they would say, Daddy, do it again. Daddy, do it again. And there's something about a child in that moment that, that holy trust, that, that holy trust that no matter how high you throw them, no matter how far their arms are flailing about, no matter how uh, wide their, their legs kick out, that, that you have got this, that you're strong enough to catch them. That no matter how many times they go up in the air, they will land back on the ground and they will look at you and they'll say, Daddy, do it again. Daddy, do it again. Daddy, one more time, one more time. And they say that because every fiber of their being exudes a trust in the sufficiency of their earthly father. For some of you here, just as we sung, just as I am, tossed about by the uncertainties of the world, the doubts and insecurities. We, we feel as if we're, we're flailing about. We, we feel as if everything under us is insecure. Take heart. Your Father has got you. Take heart. Your father isn't saying, help me catch you. Do your part. No, your father is strong and he is mighty. There is nothing that your God cannot do. So while worry might buffet you, while insecurities might be to your left and to your right, while there is doubt around you, your heavenly father loves you. He cares for you. He sees you. He knows you. Even as if you're flailing around in the world, he will always catch you because he is always God. God. Let us pray. So it is, God, that we come to you relishing the truth that you are God, wholly self sufficient, wholly independent, not dependent upon you, any of us that are in this room, but yet you choose freely to love us. To send your son to, to pay the perfect price for, for our sin. Out of just the overflow of your sufficiency, we receive your love and your care. We are grounded in who you are. So much around us can seem uncertain. And so we look to you, the only thing, the only one who is perfectly strong and sure and steady and consistent. We thank you that you are unchanging and you are unmoved, that you are a God who is secure. And in the uncertainties of our tomorrows, we trust that you have got us. You have got this, that the whole world doesn't have to rest on our shoulders because you hold the whole world in 
your hands. So we trust you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.